Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, powered by Dimers.com. I'm Matt Landis, and with the sports world getting back into full swing, in this episode, we take a big picture look at sports, business, and the media, and how betting is becoming a bigger piece of the pie. I'm honored to dig in on the topic with an expert in sports, business, and media, Jeff Fellenzer. Jeff's an associate professor at my alma mater, the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, where he currently teaches three courses, including one of the most popular classes at all of USC, Sports, Business, and Media. Jeff's also a communications consultant for USC Athletics, and he's also a Heisman Trophy voter, among other credentials too long to list for someone who's seemingly seen and done it all. In our conversation, we touch on the pandemic's impact on sports, including how this year's March Madness tournament seems to be accelerating the upswing. We also touch on the influence of betting on the media and the business of sports. And if you're a better, you're especially going to want to listen in to our breakdown of Jeff's approach when it comes to voting for the Heisman Trophy. If this rundown sounds good, I'd appreciate it if you could take a quick moment to follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you could also take a quick moment to rate and review the show, that would be incredibly helpful in bringing it to a bigger audience. And if you're looking for betting edges, check out Dimers.com, where you can find daily picks on basketball, baseball, and hockey. Quick note, Jeff's audio didn't come through quite as clearly in this episode as some previous guests have, but don't hold that against him, he's still easy enough to understand, and I'll do my best to deliver the cleanest possible audio quality moving forward. Okay, so without further ado, let's get to this week's conversation with professor and Heisman Trophy voter among many other credentials, Jeff Fellenzer. Jeff Fellenzer, welcome to Props and Hops. Thank you so much for taking time to join us. And I'd like to kick things off with a loaded question. I know it could take the full episode just to get through this topic, but if you could share the highlights in a minute or two to lay the foundation for the rest of our conversation, how would you describe your background and your career path to this point? Well, first of all, Matt, I want to thank you for inviting me. It is a always a pleasure to spend time with you, to talk sports, to talk life. It was a pleasure to have you in my class at one time. I can't believe that now seems uh, like it's been a while, but uh, time moves on. Um, and gosh, I I look up and I, it's hard for me to believe that that the time has gone. And, and just in you know in my career, I've had such a great experience teaching classes at USC Annenberg, the sports business media class that you took. I've been teaching that since um, 1999 when it was just a spring only once a year thing. I was too busy to do year round and it became year round in 2011 and um, added a couple of more classes, created a sports uh, media technology class, kind of the intersection of sports and tech, a sports film class where we where we um, analyze sports um, movies, uh, both for um, on the big screen and television, how that has impacted how athletes in the media have been portrayed and how those portrayals affect public perceptions of athletes and the sports media, which has been a really fun class I teach with Professor Saltzman. Uh, He's been at USC for 50 plus years. Um, I've had, uh, my background is, is uh, you know, across the board where it's um, been, you know, education, 
it's been entrepreneurial in create in creating the Pete Newell Challenge, my college basketball event up in the Bay Area for 10 years, which was an amazing experience. I, I feel it more every year around March Madness because um, I, I felt so kind of embedded in the college basketball community, especially during those years, meeting with coaches and uh, running the event and bringing teams out to the Bay Area. Tremendous experience that you could uh, – I never could have planned it was going to happen as often happens in life. Things just, you know, sort of fall into place and an idea turns into something. We all have a lot of ideas in our lives, but um, many things keep it, those ideas from coming to fruition. And this one just did. And so a great experience. And, and then um, the media component where I worked for, um, I was a writer and editor at the LA times for uh, about eight years and also worked for NFL properties. So I was connected to the national football league as an editor writer there. And then at the LA times, uh, I kind of had a variety of roles, but uh, sports related created a, a column on recruiting. So it was really before rivals and two, four, seven sports. And, um, and it really covered uh, extensively recruiting um, athletes in Southern California, high schools from the high school standpoint and the college standpoint. Um, so I really felt like, and I've hosted a TV show, uh, called One on One in Long Beach, which uh, was just me interviewing, as I do in class, sports uh, personalities and really finding out about their um, their you know career and life journeys. And I'm, I'm doing that with my podcast now called The Front Row, kind of modeled again after uh, what I do in class and what I did on that uh, show. So um, I'm a Heisman Trophy voter. I'm honored to be part of that that uh, fraternity. Been doing that for a while and since 2007. So. Um, I still feel like I keep, you know, my hand in media and, um, you know, trying to continue to to do things in that space in addition to teaching and um, been been pretty lucky to be able to, you know, make a living and, and do something I feel passionate about, which is, you know, a connection to sports and also to, um, I hope, helping people, um, young people especially, um, you know, reach their dreams and their goals in sports. I had a lot of help along the way myself and uh, whatever I can give back is um, something I enjoy tremendously. Yeah, well, I can vouch firsthand for the positive impact that you have on students that make their way through your class or anybody who gets the chance to encounter you through the wide range of things that you've done in your career, as you just touched on. And it strikes me that a lot of times people debate breadth versus depth, but there's no question that you've got both when it comes to your expertise of the sports landscape as a whole. And tying that in with the current times, I know the past year has been quite the wild ride in, you know, for the world in general and, and definitely within the sports industry. How would you say the pandemic has had a profound impact across the sports landscape? Well, I think it's caused us all to look a little closer uh, at what we do, how we live our lives, um, sports being a big component. I think in many cases we found out how important sports is to our society in terms of giving us an outlet, uh, an outlet where we can express our passion and emotion in a positive way, really channel it, um, you know, and, you know, just admiring and frankly missing tremendously the competitiveness that we're so used to seeing, um, you know, on the field or on the court, the ice, whatever it is. Um, so, you know, that was a great void for a while. And I think to the credit of all of the sports leagues in, in various forms, whether it was the bubble or outside of a bubble, 
uh, as the NFL proved, um, it, um, it, 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 you know, it's really caused us to, you know, sit back and, and think about, uh, about our lives and how, you know, how sports fits and how it might fit after the pandemic. And, um, what I hope is that we'll all appreciate a little bit more, uh, how lucky we were, um, to just be able to, to get up, drive out to see, um, you know, a team, uh, go to a favorite stadium. I'm a big stadium guy. So I love venues. And you and I were talking before the show about getting in on, you know, getting on a train and, and taking a surf liner down to San Diego for a, a Padres series, uh, which is a really fun thing that I've done the last few years and love Petco Park. So things like that, you know, we, I guess sometimes we don't realize maybe how in just entwined into our lives sports is for those of us that, you know, that, that love the, the games and the people in sports. And, um, you know, sometimes you don't realize exactly how much you miss something till it's taken away. But I appreciate all the people that have worked within the, um, the sports, the larger sports space to, to make the games happen somehow, some way, even when we were at our lowest ebb and things did not look good uh, in the summer, there was a restart baseball and then the NBA and and to see those you know those sports be able to celebrate uh, you know champions in spite of the obstacles was um, was really a pretty uh, pretty neat deal pretty pretty cool thing so thankful that we're we seem to be heading towards the tunnel where there's light and it's not an oncoming train anymore and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that and hopefully the takeaways have been really positive about how we can appreciate more what we have and, you know, and also look out for each other a little bit more, you know, just be cognizant of, of, you know, our, our, you know, our, our fellow man in, in some way, you know, and be more considerate. And uh, again, just appreciate, you know, how fortunate we are to be in a position to celebrate sports. Yeah. Well said. There was so much to work through over this past year. And, and to your point, maybe it was easy to, underestimate the void that we could have had until sports were taken away for a bit. And and one of those sports in particular or a sporting event that was taken away, just the timing could not have been much rougher for college basketball, not getting a March Madness tournament last year. Um, and then this year, it was a unique circumstance, one host city, kind of like the Olympics in a sense. And I think Jim Nance said that he would be in favor of exploring that as a model moving forward. And of course, in this year's tournament, we still had smaller crowds than usual. So I'd, I'd love it if you could elaborate maybe specifically on March Madness and how that tournament was so uniquely affected by the pandemic and, and where we stand after a fantastic tournament that just wrapped up. Yeah, it sure, certainly was fantastic. Um, it, it, um, it, it's, it's one of the signature sporting events in the world, certainly, um, you know, in our country, I'd say it's right there with uh, you know, nothing quite tops the Super Bowl, but those three weeks as opposed to one day, those three weeks in March bring so many people together who have a very casual interest in college basketball, but they have a great interest in their school or just the excitement. And, you know, frankly, everybody's in a pool. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a gambling element uh, to it and whatever the factors are, it brings people together. And minus that, it was, like you said, that was one of the first things that happened and it was uh, it really, really left a void. Um, I go to most Final Fours. I don't miss too many. 
especially when I was doing my basketball event. Um, uh, that was a, you know, that was an automatic, a staple. I did a lot of my work meeting with people and from other schools and coaches during the Final Four. And, um, you know, when we when there was the restart and the decision by the NCAA to do it in the bubble in Indiana, um, it felt like it was going to be a safer road to explore. And I give great credit to Dan Gabbitt and the people at the NCAA for pulling it off because, um, you know, it's the Hoosier State. And um, they love basketball. Indianapolis is a great Final Four city. Everything is close by. That's what it takes uh, to have a great Final Four city is, is things compacted and walkable and, um, you know, the energy, you can feel it. And, um, boy, you know, the point Jim Nance made about seeing if there's some way to incorporate some aspects of that in the future is intriguing because, I think when you eliminate all the excess travel, I don't know if how it worked out in terms of academically. I know a lot of schools are on spring break around that time, but uh, assuming the academic component worked, um, boy, you know, I was thinking of UCLA, which normally a team that advances from the playing games to to the regionals, switch cities, and have to be playing a game two days later, and then go home and come back if they advance. All that travel, travel was eliminated. So, for a school to do the improbable of winning in the in the playing game, the first four, and moving on, uh, I think you had a better chance to do it without the extra travel. Um, and teams just seemed more rested. Um, you know, you didn't have the distractions of going back to campus and you know, and 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 and, and having too many pats on the back. You had success, and so. I felt like the, the quality of play was strong um, and the matchups were super competitive. I, I felt like, he, you know, again, in UCLA's case, they, they had to win the extra game, but it didn't, you know, fatigue didn't seem to be an issue. And I think part of it was they eliminated, you know, the travel to and from uh, different venues and then back to campus and, and then back, to, uh, you know, to the regional. So, um it, uh, it, it, and I thought it all worked out. Uh, I miss, again, I miss not having the, the fans. And I don't know about you, Matt, but I, I felt that the sport that I had the hardest time getting used to without fans was college basketball. You know, there's something special about seeing a game, you know, in front of the Cameron crazies. Uh, mm-hmm. and I've been, and I've been to, to Cameron, so I've, I've felt it, seen it, to, to watch it on television. Uh, without without fans there, or at Allen Fieldhouse, or at you know at uh, the Kennel at Gonzaga, or any of the great venues, um, it, it boy when you miss the the energy, the sounds, the band, cheerleaders, the color, it was that was a challenge for me. And but I felt like when we finally got to March Madness, you know that stuff was secondary, and it was the competition and the quality of the of the teams. And the uh, and the games that sort of made up for it. So I, I was I really almost written off this this you know edition of March Madness again in that it's not going to be nearly like it was. Uh, but what the heck? Of course I'm going to watch. Boy, by the end I, I felt like I, I was just glued as I usually am to this you know to the screen uh, during the games. And uh, I think that's a credit to to all the schools and the coaching staffs and the players for, um, you know, for, for, for just 
putting it all out there on the court. And man, it was it was a beautiful thing. Yeah, and we got spoiled out here in Pac-12 country with the conference making a pretty unforeseeable run, especially compared to what the Big Ten did. I think we would have flip-flopped those conference results and put some pretty heavy odds on the Big Ten being the far better conference in the tournament. But it was fun to see not only UCLA, but USC made a pretty deep run. They played Oregon yep. in the Sweet 16, so we knew that one of them was going to the Elite Eight. Um, and you know those weren't the only Pac-12 teams to show. And to your point about the quality of play in the tournament, I drew a parallel to the NBA and the bubble where you mentioned in this case, not only the lack of travel, um, but also for, you know, the college athletes not going back to campus and getting too many pats on the back in the case of NBA players, you know, it's, it's nice when they have the option to do whatever they want with their own time, but if they're not able to go out and, and party or do anything that could be counterproductive to their performance, man, it really showed between not having any travel, which has a natural physiological effect as well as, kind of being forced to be more productive with any downtime or at least not having the options to be destructive, the the play that we saw on the court was through the roof. So it's going to be nice when things are more open up and everybody has the freedom to do what they want with their time. But it was also, I agree, I wasn't sure what to expect heading into the tournament. And by the end of it, I mean, that UCLA-Gonzaga Final Four game was just an all-timer. And then it, it clearly yeah. took a lot out of the Zags. But the way Baylor played in the championship game, you can't reach a much higher peak than that. So that was pretty special. Yeah, I, I would agree. And to your point about the Pac-12, it, uh, it was a watershed moment for the conference. Now, it doesn't do that much good if it becomes just like a one-off thing and then it's, you know, three or four or five more years before, you know, the league has a, another good overall um, NCAA tournament. But I, I feel like this can be um, – you know, this can be a start of a kind of a renaissance period because I think that, you know, the 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 world saw, you know, the world saw and the and the and the, the quality of play in the Pac-12 was really on display, um, and it was much better than most people realize. Heck, it was much better than some of us realize who watched the Pac-12 a lot. I mean, you know, thought Oregon State was good, and actually, I, I actually had um, several of the schools getting. To the Sweet 16, I had UCLA and USC both getting to the Sweet 16. I had Colorado getting to the Elite Eight. Um, and uh, I had Oregon getting to the Sweet 16. So, and it wasn't because it was, I, I saw something necessarily in the conference as a whole. I thought those schools in particular were just really good by the end of the year, you know. And, and in the UCLA's case, I thought they were better than what people assumed they would be because all of the losses were close at the end. Mm -hmm. And so I had kind of seen enough. I thought they had a chance to make a run. I actually wish I'd picked Oregon state to beat Tennessee in the first round. I, I just wondered whether they had, they had uh, exhausted themselves to, to get to the NCAA tournament. Otherwise just in terms of quality of the team at the end of the year, I, I, I like them. Um, so it was significant. It, 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 I think it, in, as far as the, how the, the, the league represented in the schools going forward, uh, you know, to recruits, um, to high school coaches watching the quality of play, I, I think it, it made a huge difference. I'll tell you, it made a huge difference from, difference from a business standpoint, Matt, because, you know, the, the, the system, the, the unit system they have where you get, you know, you get a unit for every, uh, step you take in the NCAA tournament, and those are worth 
uh, significant amounts of money and add it up, and they they carry over a six year period. Uh, but the bottom line was this year's tournament netted about thirty eight million dollars for the conference. It's divided evenly, so the calculation was about three point two million for each school because of the run um, of multiple schools, which which is what it takes to add up to a good you know a good chunk of change. But when you think about, gee, could any school use you know, $3 million just as a bonus, essentially. Well, that you know, that's how you add to, um, you know, facilities and the facility upgrades and, you know, and you're, you're paying top dollar for coaches, not just head coaches, but assistants and strength coaches. And, you know, so that, that's how conferences get better as a whole, you know, like the SEC and football. And, you know, and, and when you have years like this, um, you know, the whole league benefits because they divide the money all equally among among the schools. So it was significant. It was significant for the conference. And um, it was just good to see. It was always it's, it's always great to have a signature game, which UCLA Gonzaga was. You'll see, be seeing those, the highlights and the sub shot, you know, for, uh, you know, forever. Um, and so that means, you know, the Pac-12 is going to get talked about and, um you know, I, I think it left everybody feeling, certainly on the West Coast, like, uh, wow, this is a, we could be heading into a good time. Arizona's looking for a new coach. So that's a significant piece, too, of the conference. Um, but I don't think it'll take long for whoever gets that job to, you know, have Arizona right back knocking on the door. It was great. Uh, it was a great few weeks. Yeah, I love that insight, especially the business component of quantifying how much that meant for each school in the Pac-12. And there's a joke somewhere in there about USC maybe now having the money to buy out Clay Helton, but I'll leave it at that. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole today. Um, but but between yeah. the, the business angle, again, a, a boon for the whole conference. And then I love what you said about seeing past some close losses for UCLA and not just holding their one loss record against them heading into the tournament. Because, you know, with betting being a pillar of this podcast, one of the things we try to talk about is not just looking at overall results and baking too much into them from a predictive standpoint, oftentimes the process is what's really going to hold true in the long run. So yeah. a lot yeah. of close losses with a poor record isn't necessarily indicative of the record we're about to see. UCLA proved that. And at the same time with teams like UCLA and Oregon State, I think there was a fair amount of variance that swung in their favor when it came to three-point field goal percentage allowed. I know Michigan and Alabama also couldn't make a free throw for their lives against UCLA. Yeah. And that came in yeah. handy in some close late games. But at the same time, um, you just have to, you know, bake that whole picture. Some close losses, some positive variance. It, things are rarely as good or bad as they seem at face value. So it's 100%. nice to try to take that unbiased approach and then just enjoy it when things play out as they do. And it was a fascinating tournament to watch. And you've, you've touched on something that I, I was just reminded of, a betting angle I brought up, and then you had a good business insight on March Madness. And I'd like to kind of bring those two things together, betting as well as the business of sports. I know a big watershed moment in this case came three years ago, April 2018, when the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, also known as PASPA, was overturned. And for context, PASPA banned sports betting in the United States outside of Nevada. And for some context, in 2017, the last full year before PASPA was overturned, $4.8 billion were wagered legally in Nevada. If we look at 2018, across the whole country with some legalization rolling out, early states like New Jersey getting involved, the handle, a term for the amount bet, was up almost 40% year over year 
up to $6.6 billion. And then 2019, first full year with expanded legalization throughout the country, that handle almost doubled just year over year to 13 billion. So these numbers say a lot about the business of betting and how that intersects with the sports world. But I'm wondering how else you could contextualize the impact that betting has on the business of sports. Yeah, no, I think it's significant, Matt, right now. By the way, the figure I saw just in one of the states where um, betting is, is sports betting is, is legal now, which is New Jersey. And of course, uh, Governor Christie was, you know, is, you know, a huge proponent of, of allowing um, states the opportunity to make those decisions on their own about, about sports betting. But the figure I saw just in the month of February for the state of New Jersey was 750 million. Um, and I hope I'm recalling it correctly. Uh, and that was like, that was very much of a wow thing when I saw that figure, I just saw it this week. Um, so, I mean, there's clearly, uh, there's great interest in, in that, um, in, in, in gambling, um, on sports. It, it's, we're at a time when everybody is, is, uh, scrambling to figure out how to, how to monetize, um, how to create revenue streams that will, uh, give fans the opportunity to uh, enjoy a sporting event uh, and attached to a wager on the event. Um, Ted Leonsis, the part of the, the monumental uh, sports group that owns the, the Wizards, the Caps in D.C., he has a, a they have a deal with William Hill and they actually have a they have a uh, a room like a almost like a the equivalent of a beer garden kind of a setup. Uh, but it's for, um, you know, just a room where uh, you can go to place bets. There's kiosks placed during the, you know, throughout the arena. Um, but it's a place you can go. Essentially, it's like a sports book, creating a sports book within, you know, within the arena. And so many of the teams and leagues have deals with sports books. Um, it, it's, just, it's just one of those things that was um, going to happen at some point. It was just it was inevitable. Uh, we just we kind of advanced to that stage where, you know, I think most people felt like that should be a decision made by uh, individuals or of a certain age. Um, and there's protections in place, of course, to, you know, concern about about, uh, you know, somebody who, you know, underage um, and uh, maybe not having a, a, a great handle for kind of what they're getting into and the idea of the, you know, having having a Know, the component of your, uh, you know, disposable income to be able to do that, um, getting those safeguards in place, um, then uh, it 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 makes sense. There there's there's um, there's certainly a connection between gambling and fantasy sports. So I think that too is a, you know, that that that's that's a realistic thing. Um, you know, you really can't separate that if you're interested in fantasy. Um, you know, that's certainly a form of gambling and there's a strong, strong interest in fantasy sports today. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be curious, uh, how, how much, uh, individual clubs, uh, you know, around the professional sports, um, landscape will, will do what, what they're doing in DC, um, as far as, you know, making, um, whether it's through the kiosks or, a you know, or a, a kind of a, a mini sports book, um, you know, space in the arenas or stadiums. 
whether they go that route or, um, you know, send information directly to your smartphone. Um, but those are the questions that are being figured out right now and kind of trial and error. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think for, for anybody that's feels like a lot of people do that they're just more interested, frankly, March Madness has thrived because of that gambling component. We, you know, we care a lot about who wins a game between, you know, Cornell and Wisconsin because it matters in your, you know, in your pool and, you know, in, in some sort of a, you know, some, some sort of a gambling uh, component that you have related to March Madness. So we've had that for years and, you know, it's like, well, why wouldn't we be able to, you know, make a wager on a, a game of our, of our choice, no matter, you know, what sport it is. And, um, uh, and, it, and it just became harder and harder to, to justify why, you know, there wasn't that, that, uh, the rules set in place that you could do that. And I'm, so I'm really curious, um, maybe like any fan, what, what, what the impact is going to be and, um, whether you're going to see greater interest in sports because of that, whether the casual fan has a greater interest. Um, that's what I think is going to be interesting. When you go to a game, if you say to your friend who maybe isn't a huge sports fan, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's put a little money, let's put a little wager on this, either the result or a certain, you know, element of the game itself, um, and, and see how, and, and, and whether there truly is then more sustained interest, uh, in the games and whether that turns into, uh, just bringing more people to the to the stadiums, or at least tuning in. Uh, those are all questions we're going to get answered. I think at least get a start to get answered over the next few years. Yeah, I I really like the point that you made about a lot of this has always been happening. I find it ironic that the official NCAA brackets for years. I think this year they finally got rid of it, but the the don't bet on it tagline on yes. all the brackets when. Okay, well, how much money are you making off of these ratings, and how much are your sponsors paying you? It's like that's that's kind of directly correlated. So I know that we want to do what we can to steer clear of problem gambling, but at the same time, there is a lot of I think safe upside and entertainment to be had. So it's nice to see things coming out of the shadows. And to your point about you know just going to a game and and maybe throwing down a few bucks, I feel like that is increasingly common. I know that over the past year, there's a poker group that I've gotten involved with. Um, we just played Friday nights with some of my wife's family and friends back East. And there are times where we're playing a game and some guy's sweating out a blowout between the jazz and the Mavs because he took a, an in running line at plus 12. And so the game's already decided with a few minutes left, but it's like, okay, is this going to land on 10 or 11 or are we going to get a 13 or 14 point margin? So right. little things like that. Again, to your point, if people don't have the disposable income to play with, then we do want to be mindful of that and try to keep people on track. But you know, if you're just doing that and that's adding entertainment to your Friday night and it's an amount you can afford to lose, or or better yet, if it comes through, it makes things all that much more fun, then then what's the harm? So I I like the direction that this is going in general, but I think one factor that would be great to dig in on with you would be also sports betting in the media. Cause I see a relationship there between the overall business and sports landscape as well. And I've sensed that the line is blurring between the media and betting. It's really exciting to, again, see things come out of the shadows and to see ESPN have a daily betting show from the Las Vegas strip. I couldn't have imagined that five, 10 years ago. And at the same time, I, I see some red flags popping up when it comes to 
what I perceive as a lack of real betting knowledge. In some ways, this could be misguided entertainment at best or maybe lead to some problem gambling at worst. And I'm curious to see how you think it's going and how we can best acknowledge this relationship that's clearly there between sports betting and the media without screwing it up. Yeah, it's a really good question, Matt. And I've discussed it in my in my classes, um, my intro to sports media class, where we sort of look at, at the sports media landscape, the big picture of it. And I bring in a guest that um, works for Brent Musburger's um, company, Vison, um, in Las Vegas, and hosts the show, Mal um, Shaw, to talk about this and to talk about um, how gambling has been integrated into mainstream media. Now, it's a little slower. Your example of ESPN and the Daily Wager show that Bill Walton loves to death. Uh, yes, that's, um, that's a great example. The LA Times, um, at least the online version that I see most of the time, they were doing, um, you know, highlighting specific games during um, March Madness. The UCLA game, let's see, it was, uh, I guess it was UCLA um, Alabama game and maybe the USC Gonzaga game in the Sweet 16. Um, they, they did separate articles and they used, they used experts from, from the Vegas Stats and Information Network from Vizlin to give like it was kind of a kind of short stories, but nonetheless about why they would choose to go either this way or that way with the point spread. And, um, you know, this is our recommendation. It, it, it didn't go on too long, but it was just a kind of a quick look at, the, at, the, at each of the games with, you know, with a, with a writer's byline on it. And I thought, wow, you know, going back to days that when I was at the LA times and, and uh, the powers that be had no interest. In fact, they flipped entirely the other way. You know, like they didn't want to have, it, it, you were barely able to see the gambling lines, which I always thought was interesting. I've always enjoyed just seeing what the lines are, just to see how much of a favorite one team is or how much of an underdog. But just the gambling lines were, were not always available in the LA Times. And I think they, that was reflective of, pretty much most of the major mainstream newspapers. So to see the, get to the point where there's a show on a, on, you know, on the, the number one sports network where there are articles in, you know, major generally in the past conservative newspapers when it came, when it comes to sort of cutting edge things, um, it, it's going to be really interesting um, how it's integrated into stories. I don't think it's ever going to be a major uh, component, nor do I think it should be, but I think it's one of those areas that you need to be mindful of if you're in the media. Um, just there's some awareness. It can be dropped into if you find trends or something where, you know, boy, you know, you know, USC has been, uh, has, you know, covered as the favorite every single game they've played so far through nine weeks. I mean, just patterns, trends that might be interesting. You don't have to take it beyond that. Let it, you know, let anybody draw conclusions. Uh, maybe that means that the uh, expectations of a team uh, were, were maybe made uh, lower than they should have been. The team has exceeded expectations. Or, I mean, I think you can draw real conclusions. Um, that reflect maybe how a lot of fans think. Um, the people that set the lines have a lot of information, but they're making 
judgments like fans might. They're just armed with a lot of information and expertise. And kind of interesting to see how they, you know, how, how their forecasts have gone about a certain team. And so I think it could be, you know, I think it could, the information can be useful and helpful and how the media chooses to use it and frame stories um, is going to be, it's going to be interesting. It's one of the things that we're, we're talking about. You know, the rules are being written now. I mean, we're just finding out how things are going and, you know, where, how much of a, a role that, that, that gambling and information about strengths and weaknesses of teams, how that plays out in the media. Um, you know, people are making decisions about it right now. So again, I think over the next few years, it's going to be, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Yeah, I like that you touched on Vs, and I think they've been doing a lot of things right. I actually had the chance to catch some of the USC throttling of Kansas in the second round from the new Circa Sportsbook, where Vsin has a great studio set up yeah. overlooking everything. And I hope that with DraftKings recently acquiring them, that they can continue to maintain their independence and keep doing what they're doing. I know the the early indications are we're being told that DraftKings is going to be hands off as far as editorial input and all that. And I hope that's how it plays out. And beyond VEASAN, you touched on the Daily Wager with ESPN running their show from the Vegas Strip every day. And then even The Athletic doing a big yes. push into gambling with a, a new betting vertical. So I think beyond a lot of the information itself, it's going to be fascinating to see just how, to your point, how the media approaches what to do with all the information available, given the direction things are trending. And what I hope to see is a lot of the key players taking the long view. Right now, it feels like we're in the middle of a land grab, kind of like the gold rush way back when, but they're just like there was then. Right now, there's a finite amount of real estate. It's not going to last forever. And I think it's imperative for a lot of the big players to act in the audience's best interest now in order to keep and eventually grow those audiences over time with a deeper connection. Because the risk I'm seeing is that a lot of players can make a quick buck right now, but a failure to teach people either how to win or even just lose less is better so they can enjoy it more and more responsibly. Not doing that would also be a disservice to the audience as well as the media itself, because if the audience just bleeds its bankroll and goes away, they're possibly gone for good. So it's mm -hmm. going to be great where we see certain networks and outlets get people legitimately qualified to speak to betting so that, you know, we're seeing the media trust that doing right by the audience is also doing right by the business in the long term. So I'm sure some of the key players won't take that route, but I'm cautiously optimistic that some of them will. And I think that's, you know, that's to me, the cream that's going to rise in the long run. Yeah, no, I think that I think you're right. It's it's going to be interesting to see what, what the impact is on fans. You know, when people go into Las Vegas and and they walk through a casino, you know, they, there's going to be, uh, I, I would think, a pretty fair percentage that sit down and you know at a blackjack table and 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 they don't, you know, they they wouldn't be considered blackjack, you know, expert players or anything. But they have fun with just you know around a craps table, just the energy in the room and. And, uh, you know, put a few dollars down. I mean, it's money you, you take to Vegas that you might be using to go to a movie if you were at home or, or something. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, you're you're dropping thousands of dollars. I have a I have a good friend who's who I would consider a blackjack expert and he works at it. I mean, whenever I'm visiting him, he'll be talking to me and he'll just be dealing cards. He, he You know, there's a system he plays and and, you know, he, he, he really he puts time in. He, he does. He works out. Uh, as a blackjack player, like 
you know, like you, you, somebody would go to a gym. I mean, like he just works that a little bit each day. And so he'll talk, he'll roll his eyes when people talk about, oh, I got a gut feeling or, you know, or that, you know, I'm, uh, I'm thinking this right now, I'm feeling hot or whatever. He just says, you know, you, there's a, there's a move for, for every situation and you have to be guided by, you know, your head, not your heart. But, you know, most people that, you know, my, my guess is that would enter the, the pools that, that uh, are so popular during March Madness, they're not using some, you know, the, the Ken Palm rankings or, you know, all of the, you know, all the metrics that are available. They're going more with their, their heart and their team or their confidence they like, whatever. And, and, um, and, and, and having fun with it. And again, there's some discipline, of course, that, that, that you keep it to where this is how much I'm going to, and my friend, the, the blackjack player, He'll walk in, and this is the amount he set aside for that particular session. And if it, if he maxes out at that and and spends it, boom, that's when he walks away. So, uh, you know, whether people continue to, you know, or or develop a you know uh, a level of enjoyment that's just fairly casual, you know, bet on the game out at the yeah, you know, at the stadium. Let's go and just do on on who wins and and leave it at that or whether it gets more sophisticated and there's more interest in the shows like the ones on Vison and daily wage and others, you know, we'll find out that that'll, that'll be interesting. Maybe it becomes just another form of the disposable income that people use for whatever their activities are uh, in life. And then, and prior to this, you would have to take a trip to Vegas and that's what would be living in Southern California. It would be like, okay, I'm, Let's go there. The NFC Championship, the AFC Championship games are being played this weekend. Let's go to Vegas. And it would just be very periodic. Now it's like, okay, we're going to bring that, you know, the, the, the capability of, of doing that to your life year-round. So let's see how how you incorporate it into your life. And I think that's going to be interesting. And then going back to the point about the media, just – you know, is it will we get to the point where there's going to have to be even more mainstream coverage of the gambling industry and um, you know the elements of of following sports that uh, that involve uh, you know setting lines and why you know strengths and weaknesses and how they contribute to our understanding because I do think they can contribute to our understanding of a team's strengths. And weaknesses and so there's a lot you know there's a lot in the mix there and and we'll we'll kind of see what where it goes um you know here coming up in the in the days and years ahead yeah i love that example you shared about your friend who's the blackjack player because i think a common thread between whether it's blackjack or almost any casino game and betting sports is having a plan and looking at things analytically and then having the discipline to stick to that plan and trusting your approach. Right. And one thing that I think some listeners here would be really interested in from that type of betting approach perspective would be getting to Heisman Trophy voting. That's something that a lot of listeners here will bet on and it's something that you vote on. So I'd love to kick things off by just asking what was the process like to become a voter for the Heisman Trophy? Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's really a it's, it's been such a great experience for me, Matt. Started in 2007. It was actually a former professor of mine uh, at USC who, who taught a sports reporting class I took and was a 
was a longtime Sports Illustrated writer, phenomenal writer and, and great uh, man, uh, Joe Jars. And uh, Joe had covered college football for Sports Illustrated. And he, he'd sort of stepped away. And as he went on to do other things, teaching and he was sports editor of the LA Daily News for a while. And, and so there was an opening for the West region. It's, you know, the, it's, the, the voting is very regionalized. Um, as I think most people are aware. So there's balance in the number of voters around the country. And there was an opening uh, for the West Coast region. And they had reached out to Joe and he just felt he wasn't dialed in enough to the college football scene like he felt he needed to be to do the job justice. So he called me and just said, hey, they're looking for somebody um, on the West Coast. Um, would you be interested? If so, I'm going to, you know, give, I'm gonna give them your name. And there's a regional coordinator is is um, is up in the Bay Area, and but had lived in Southern California. So uh, he put us in touch. And um, so we connected. There was a lot of the, you know, a lot about my background uh, covering sports, and, uh, you know, football and college and pro various forms, um, teaching and, and just being close to the game. I go to high school football every Friday night. Um, this is the first year I've, I've missed out and I'm actually going to my first high school game next week since it's now a spring sport for, for at least for just this year. Uh, so, um, been involved in, in the sport and, in a number of different ways, high school, college. And so there was a vetting process, um, you know, sent him some stuff and, you know, we, we, again, we, we, we connected. I think he saw the passion I have and uh, how strongly I feel about college football. And, and it was funny because when um, he said, you know, it would take probably a week or so. And I was, I had some friends in town and when I do that and it happens to fall at the right time and it was a Friday and I was on campus and, they were in, in town for a game the next day, a USC game. And I said, why don't you come over to Heritage Hall? And the, the, the rally on Friday is kind of a fun thing. It kind of gets you in the mood for, for the game. And um, if you haven't done it, it's, it's, it's kind of a cool thing. And so I was entertaining a couple of friends who brought them in and the band's playing. And, you know, everybody's kind of getting fired up <clears throat> about the game the next day. And I looked down at my phone. I couldn't hear it, but I could see it flashing. So I stepped outside and it was, it was the coordinator. Uh, of the Heisman voting on the West Coast, and he wanted to let me know that um, that the uh, the headquarters in New York had had, uh, had given the, the thumbs up on uh, on accepting me as a voting member and welcoming me to the family. And I thought, wow, what a what a cool place to get that get the word, you know, at a at a, at a college football rally. And uh, so that was kind of that was kind of a fun fun moment, and that started it. And um, so there are about 930, I think we're at 938 or so, uh, total voters, 43 in the state of California. It, it goes up a little bit each year because every Heisman Trophy winner becomes a voter. So that's why the, the, the numbers are, uh, will, will change uh, a little bit. Um, but it's, you know, as I said, it's, it's spread out so that each area is represented. Um, and it, it definitely changes the way you watch college football. For me, it does. I, there are times where I might want to go to a game and I do go as often as I can. Cause I do feel it's important to be out and in the stadiums as often as possible. Um, it just makes you feel much more connected to the sport 
but there are times where I've said, you know, I, I, I think I'm going to stay home today because there's games I really want to watch and players I want to see. And I think I'll miss too much. I don't have time to record a bunch of games and try to watch all of them. I can get the highlights where I need it, um, you know, digitally. But um, it uh, there are times where I do feel it's important to, to take in as many games as I can. And I do a weekly Heisman update in my sports business media class. I bring the students into the process. I, I do it kind of like a weekly, you know, wire service poll where I say, okay, this is my one, two, three for this week. And these are the what I call the uh, uh, at the doorstep or, um, you know, just on deck, like the ones that are close. Uh, but there's only three lines on a Heisman ballot that you can only put three names on. So that's what I do in my, you know, weekly updates. Um, knocking on the door is the next group of whatever it might be, six, seven, eight names, whatever, or big early in the season. And then I just, I'll get input from the students and say, what do you guys think? Did I leave anybody out? What are your thoughts? So I, I always try to talk about the, um, you know, the Heisman, uh, you know, process and the race as, as it goes on. Because I have a lot of very knowledgeable friends, and I, I always want to make sure that I'm not missing something, whether it's an individual candidate or something, a statistic from another candidate that uh, I need to consider a little bit. And um uh, so I, I try to take it seriously because I feel it's a, it's an incredible honor to be part of, of this process. And the one I've enjoyed just immensely. Yeah, that's what a moment to be at Heritage Hall surrounded by all those Heismans, you know, at the rally and then to get right. that call. That's, that's so special that that seems so fitting. And I think that, uh, when I was in your class, you were transparent about your vote after you had submitted it, but these weekly updates sound really intriguing. And if we have any listeners who are really tech savvy, uh, you might have some stealth people crashing your class to try to get an edge <laughs> on how they want to test their own their own bets. But sure. you touched on a lot of your approach to voting by trying to see as many games as you can, trying to get to the stadium when you can, but also make sure that you're not just watching one or two games when there's more information you need to get to make that really well thought out decision, uh, leaning on really smart people in your inner circle. Are there any other key factors when it comes to your approach to voting? I, I think of sometimes there's, okay, what do we do if like Alabama this past year or great USC teams in years past where there could be multiple candidates? I know um, yeah. this year, Alabama, um, you know, that you pick your guy, USC had Reggie Bush and Matt Leinard on some teams. Um, what do you do in cases like that or in cases where, um, there might be anything off the field. Does that ever enter the equation as well? Or is it strictly certain numbers that you look for on field production? Yeah, it, 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 it really varies. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to, um, to get too far away from quarterbacks because they have so many of the measurables. And, you know, you, people are looking for, um, for, um, just whatever the, um, whatever you feel like your, you know, your, your most important, um, you know, statistical areas are, um, whatever position you're judging, but you're, you're looking for information. You're looking for things that you can get your hands on. I, I often say, you know, when somebody says, how come there's never, you know, can an offensive lineman be the best player? Absolutely. Now you've got to convince almost a thousand people voting 
why this is the best player in offensive lineman, and you don't have a whole lot of measurables. What I mean, pancake blocks. I mean, you know, what is it that you can you can really just you know get your arms around? So that's that's the problem with some positions. Um, when you have a great receiver, um, like we had with you know Devonte Smith, and I thought that was a in the end, I thought that was a pretty easy call, and I thought he would win substantially. Um, but you know, okay, who's throwing him the the passes? I mean, the quarterback is, in my mind, the most important position in all of sports. So naturally, somebody that can pull the trigger at that position and get the ball to the to the players, to the playmakers, um, you know, you kind of start with the quarterback. And when you, in the era of the dual threat quarterbacks, you know, when you've got, um, you know, Johnny Manziel in, in his year or, or you know, Tim Tebow or um, Kyler Murray, you know, guys that do it with their legs um, and their arm, then it's really hard for another position to to rise up um, because the quarterback just you know has such a profound influence uh, you know on a team's fortunes. So it's um, it's not any necessarily one particular category. Um, I'd I'd say for a quarterback, accuracy is probably um, that's I think that's really jumped up as far as popping off uh, off off a page when you look at numbers. Um, you know, you, you know, it's great to have hey you know, throw a lot of touchdown passes and have a lot of yards, but, but God, when a guy is, is as accurate as, as some of the passers are and can run, um, those are things that, that, uh, that stick out a little bit, um, to me, but I think just, you know, I, I try not to get too caught up in, in the one loss record, definitely. Um, you know, and when I think about, Alabama. In fact, I had this year. I had Devonte Smith one, and I had Mac Jones three. So receiver, and then quarterback. Um, more often than not, it tends to go the other way, where it's quarterback, and then maybe just below that could be receiver or running back. Um, because, as I said, I usually I usually start with you know looking at the impact of of a team's uh, quarterback. Um, but it, um, you know, it's it's kind of all across the board. I I, I like to think that I, I don't go in with any preconceived notions to a season. I don't think anybody had Devonte Smith at the top of of their list. The fact that anything was his teammate Jalen Waddle that made more short lists going into last season. So I think it's important to, you know, go in with an open mind. I don't try to get too caught up in sort of the preseason. Um, you know, forecasts other than just helping you identify your long first initial long list to start with. But, you know, sometimes those don't even necessarily represent uh, the most accurate picture early in a season. You know, I can remember Geno Smith of the West Virginia quarterback a few years back, kind of coming out of nowhere. And Johnny Manziel really the same way as a redshirt freshman uh, that just pop onto the scene. It's easier now to pop onto the scene and get right in, get everybody's attention because um, it's just, you know, we have so many media outlets and in the digital age, it's so, it's so easy to have highlights available and on your phones and uh, all of that, your access to information is unprecedented now. So um, it, it's hard to really fly into the radar for very long. And, uh, and that's good because it, 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 um, your, your, your work early in the season is, 
is probably the most significant to start to see when candidates separate, start to separate themselves and and um, and then uh, and then it's just following them and and uh, kind of seeing where the journey goes of the season. Yeah, that is such a well thought out answer. It gives me a lot more confidence in the voting process if we have a lot more voters like you who put that level of thought and effort into everything. I love the point about offensive linemen. I think the tricky thing there is since they pretty much never touch the ball unless something's gone wrong, it's really hard to measure the absence of something. If we see something, it's easy to think, okay, you know, what you see is what you get, as the saying goes, versus a lineman it's hard to say the absence of sacks or quarterback pressures or allowing their guy to tackle the running back behind the line of scrimmage. So that certainly makes it tough in such a subjective endeavor. Um, But speaking of uphill battles in a subjective endeavor, I'd like to touch on some 2021 contenders and get your early thoughts on this year's ballot. I know that on the betting boards, Spencer Rattler, the Oklahoma quarterback, currently the favorite, but his line is about four to one. So still quite possible that somebody else is going to come home with it. Bryce Young, also on the short list. He's a former USC commit, went to modern day high school in Orange County. So kind of feels like the one that got away and went to Alabama. He's at six to one. And then Clemson, not skipping a beat. Trevor Lawrence's replacement, the third most likely guy to win it at eight to one. Another Southern California product who got away, St. John Bosco High School product. I'll try to get the name right. DJ Uyangalele, I believe. Uyangalele, um, yeah. Okay, there we go. I, I looked up phonetic spelling and, and did not check the right store, so I will take your word for that one. <laughs> okay. But between okay. between Rattler, Young, and Ugalele, or maybe anybody else, you've mentioned it's easier now to kind of come out of nowhere based on just the sheer volume of media outlets and different platforms. What are you eyeing at this stage of the approach for 2021? Well, it's kind of interesting to, to, to continue on with your, you know, with the storyline of, of uh, Southern California high school quarterbacks. Imagine. DJ Gugulele, who's been in the top few in most of the early season projections, the Clemson quarterback from St. John Bosco. Bryce Young from Modern Day is the Alabama quarterback who's also been on short list. And, uh, and then what about JT Daniels, the Georgia quarterback, mm-hmm. also from Modern Day? So there's three Southern California players who I saw play a lot in high school. And one's at Clemson, one's at Alabama, and one's at Georgia. Um, and those are just Southern California quarterbacks. Um, and yeah, it, it uh, I, I, I actually, they had asked me to, 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 to meet Bryce Young, who was interested in communication and in journalism when he was considering USC and, and committed to USC. And I remember meeting him and, and, um, and his, and his dad and, um, so I was particularly interested in because I was impressed with with Bryce and and thought he had a really bright future, uh, you know, on and off the field. So um, it's been it's been cool to see his progress to the point where, I mean, Nick Saban is handing him the keys to the car for this year at, at Alabama. The keys, I should probably should say the keys to the kingdom. Um, it's going to be fun to watch. Um, uh, you know, I, I would say yeah, a couple of the other names that you got to consider. I think Sam Howell. He's been a he's been a favorite of mine through his his first couple of years at North Carolina. I think he has a bright future, and I think his uh, I think his candidacy could explode this year. Um, and I think you have to include Keaton Slovis, frankly. Um, you know, from USC. And I, when people ask me about 
you know, USC candidates. I, I, I'm just so, I'm just so thrilled to be part of the process. Believe me, I, I, it, it doesn't matter where, where someone's from. The only thing I, I may see someone more from, you know, a, a local product from Southern California, I may see them more, but, you know, I like to think I'm going to have the same critical eye no matter who is there, because I, I, I again, I just, I, I feel so um, honored and I, you know, I always want to feel like at the end I've done my, I've done my homework and uh, the, the final, not just the person that I, I, I pick, you know, my choice for the award, but, but the second and third lines are just as important to me. I've agonized other, in di different years when I, I felt strong about one or one and two, but I was, you know, a, I didn't have a great feel for the separation at the third spot. And that's important because as you know, only typically, you know, four or five candidates get invited to New York and where there's a drop off in the voting, like if there's, if there's not a lot of separation um, between three candidates, then, and then, but there's a big separation between the first three and then maybe the fourth and fifth and on, then you're probably only going to get three invited to New York. If it's, fairly close competitive with the top four spots, then those are the ones that are going to be invited. And if there's a drop to five, it'll be just four. So I think it's, I think it's a great honor to be invited to New York, even if you're, you're just sitting there and, you know, it's not realistic that you probably are going to win it. Um, but you're certainly people realize that you're one of the finalists. That's a big deal. So I try to make it a big deal each of the spots, each of the, uh, you know, those three lines when I make my decisions. Um, you know, so I think those th those quarterbacks certainly will get a lot of attention, you know, kind of right out of the gate. I think I think the, uh, the running back of Iowa State, Brees Hall, led the nation rushing last year and had led Iowa State to a great season. Um, he certainly would be there. Another, another player I had a chance to meet when he was in high school uh, was B. John Robinson. Uh, at Texas that's going to be playing for Steve Sarkeesian. Um, so there's, there's a few running backs that, that, um, uh, you know, that you, you'll, that, that I'm sure will be on, on the minds of Heisman voters when the season starts. And, and, I, you know, of course I'll be really curious about, about uh, those um, players that just, you know, pop up and, and uh, have seasons that we didn't necessarily expect to see when, the season started and, and uh, they kind of explode. That, that, that's the fun part of it is just the, the candidates that you didn't necessarily um, have in mind. And, and uh, that's why I don't want to get ever get too, too far along with, with uh, preseason lists because they're a guide, but then, you know, kind of everybody starts, um, you know, from the same place and let's, let's see what happens. And obviously you're impacted by uh, the quality of, you know, the competition, opponents, things like that. We didn't have, we didn't have that in some areas of the country um, like we normally do last year uh, in the non-conference part of it, uh, not in the, in the Pac-12, certainly. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing those big early season matchups again. I really missed a lot of those last year. Yeah, it's going to be so great to have a more complete season this coming year. Uh, but before we get to the fall, there's something to celebrate. Um, just a day after this episode's going to drop. So one more topic I want to touch on here. I know we're just pushing north of the hour mark. I want to respect your time and I appreciate you taking the time to do this, but something that transcends 
Thank you. Yeah, something that transcends betting, sports, business, our whole society. Jackie Robinson made his major league debut on April 15th, 1947. And April 15th every year is Jackie Robinson Day across Major League Baseball. So on the subject of remembering Jackie Robinson, I know I was I was fortunate to have Fred Clare on the show near the end of last year. Um, he called Jackie the greatest Dodger of all. And he's the World Series winning former general manager of that team. I know also a friend of yours. And I'm wondering how you remember Jackie and his impact on sports and our society from your perspective. Well, I, I really appreciate you asking that question, Matt. And thanks for reminding me. I'll, I'll, I'll bring that up in my, my next class. Um, and I'll probably have a Jackie Robinson quote as being, I normally have a weekly wooden, as you know, um, and, and Jackie Robinson and his quote about uh, a life not 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 having true meaning unless it impacts others. I'm paraphrasing, but but it's essentially that you know the impact of your life is is how that life impacts other people, and um, that will be my my uh, my weekly wooden quote um, this week, this next week from Jackie Robinson. Um, I talk about him as arguably America's greatest athlete. Um, you know, you hear Jim Thorpe's name and Jesse Owens' names, but when I think about Jackie Robinson and Imagine his impact on baseball and, you know, breaking the color barrier at a time when baseball was basically where the NFL is today, maybe even more so because there just wasn't almost no competition from other sports. College football, yeah, a little bit, uh, but really no NBA at that point. NBA was just starting and, and you know, and the NFL, um, uh, again, not nearly the, 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 the point it's at today, the NHL. Uh, it's really more maybe boxing, horse racing, um, but you know baseball was king. And so when baseball, when when those barriers were 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 were, um, uh, were brought down, and there was a there was a there was a new uh, entry um, portal for the best players. Period, regardless of color, it, it had an impact on on uh, race relations in this country. You know, Brown versus Board of Education was. Seven years later, you know, the Civil Rights Act was 10 years after that. I mean, it, it didn't come rapid fire, but it started the process. It pushed the process along. So when I think of the impact of Jackie Robinson, both on the field as a champion, led the Dodgers to a World Series, had a Hall of Fame career, um, and his impact off the field, I, I put him in a pantheon really second to none. And when you think about being the first four-sport athlete ever at UCLA, you know, leading the nation in punt returns, coming as a junior college um, player out of Pasadena uh, City College, Muir High School, uh, like a, a, a great running back, terrific safety on defense. I mean, he had the kind of size, 5'11", 190, 195. He, he would have played safety or running back, I think, today. And I think he probably would have chosen football because it would have given him the quicker path to – you know, to, to, to stardom, professional stardom. Baseball was going to be a grind. He, he made it. He got through it. You know, he didn't have a great interest in the Negro Leagues because he knew that wasn't the, the, you know, the best competition that he was used to. And it, you couldn't really aspire to Major League Baseball when you were growing up. So he didn't put as much time into baseball. And as a result, he had, you know, he played one year at UCLA and hit 097. I mean, can you imagine a guy making the Hall of Fame with a career average of 312? And he batted 097 in his one year of college baseball. And that's after getting four hits in his first game. 
So he, he, he probably didn't get more than four hits the rest of the season. And, uh, and, and yet, uh, you know, he, 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 you know, he reaches the hall of fame and, and, um, has an extraordinary career, but I mean, college football, uh, superstar, um, he led the conference in scoring the Southern division of what, what was then the equivalent of the, you know, the PAC 12 led his division in scoring twice. And he won the NCAA long jump championship, won the championship now. And you know, when he's splitting time between two sports, he's not able to give, you know, full attention to, to either one of those sports yet still wins the long jump. So when I think of all of his, um, uh, accomplishments. That's why I say, hey, to me, I mean, if I, I, I would call him our, you know, our greatest athlete and and greatest has extra special meaning in his case because of of what he did, the impact he had on on, um, you know, on mankind, frankly, and, and, and especially in this country when, you know, race was such a volatile era at, and time um, and, and, and how it impacted life um, and opening up uh, and just pe- opening people's eyes and getting them to think differently about uh, about doing something is to me as fundamental as allowing the the best players, the most qualified players, to play in the game. And and so I I, I think the idea of having celebrating Jackie Robinson's um, you know that that milestone and uh, breaking the color barriers, doing that every year, and and a special acknowledgement on April fifteenth, and having every player wear number forty two that day but otherwise having that number retired permanently from baseball is um is 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 an extraordinary thing and it's the extraordinarily right thing yeah i feel like there are a lot of athletes who are worthy of going on the short list in the conversation of greatest american athlete jackie might have the best case on the side of putting him in there and he might also be the toughest one to argue against for all the reasons you mentioned i mean he not only was a Hall of Famer in baseball, but he was excellent across so many different athletic disciplines. And then off the field, it's like th- there are virtually no holes to poke in that argument. So I think you've made a really strong case there. It's going to be fun once again, especially after baseball wasn't being played April 15th of last year. Yet another thing that's going to be really nice to get back in the fold in 2021 and beyond. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And, you know, thing is, you know, uh, Matt, Jackie died in uh, much too early in 1972. He was only 53. He had diabetes, and you know, one of the things he he said, and famously said, was that he he would he would feel a lot better about the game of baseball the day he would look down and see a a black man as uh, as qualified and chosen to manage a major league baseball team. And you know what? It was only three years later that Frank Robinson, uh, you know, broke that barrier as a player manager with the Cleveland Indians. And uh, I got a chance to meet Frank who, who passed away in the past year and, um, and, and, and was honored to be able to spend a little bit of time with him at a couple of events. But um, uh, you know, that was, that was, I mean, he was, he was just a, I, always a champion for, for um, you know, what I consider to be just basic human rights and um, you know, just getting us to understand you know, just getting the opportunity was important. Um, and just, you know, judge my qualification by my body of work and not the color of my skin. And, um, it, it, it seems so fundamental and basic now, but, um, you know, coming up, imagine, I, I say this often too, Matt, 
you know, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, you know, those guys started in the early 50s, uh, mid 50s. What if they had been born 15 years, 20 years earlier? Um, just think about, I mean, think about the players of the magnitude of those guys. When you think of, you know, Aaron or, you know, or Clemente or, you know, McCovey, uh, you know, Robinson and, and, uh, on and on with with the the, the stars that, that emerged from you know the, the integration in the 50s and the 60s if they had come on on a different time like like Josh Gibson did and Satchel Paige and cool Papa Bell and those great Negro League stars we, we wouldn't know Willie May we would know Willie Mays as a, oh yeah that was the name I remember the Negro Leagues um, and you know that's basically what we know about those Negro League players yeah we heard they were good and there's not much you know, you know, there's not much film or anything else that, uh, but we would have had that with those with those great players too. Uh, and uh, fortunately, things changed in time that at least we didn't miss another generation of of great players who happened to be black. Yeah, I, as you said that, I, I was sensing a bit of a parallel to a much less consequential note we made earlier about how difficult it is to gauge offensive linemen for the Heisman Trophy where so much of what they do isn't measured on a stat sheet, but it's the absence of the problems they prevent. And similarly, thinking yeah. of baseball before 1947, we had Babe Ruth. I mean, Ty Cobb, nobody seems to have anything good to say about him as a person, but he was a great player. Uh, Honus Wagner, a lot of all-time greats before 47, but you know, we were deprived of seeing some of these all-time greats at the major league level. And I don't want to be a downer about that, but I think it's important to acknowledge it and and keep that in part of the perspective as we celebrate Jackie Robinson Day and, and thank goodness that we saw, you know, all the guys you mentioned starting with like Willie Mays and Hank Aaron coming up, you know, right in Jackie following in Jackie's footsteps. Right, right. Exactly right. Um, yeah, it's I, I the other thing I I say this often in class is, you know, the NBA started around 1947-48, right in there is when the league as we know it was where well, there were a couple of leagues and the NBA was, you know, kind of formed um, around that time, and 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 um, and black players actually played in the NBA um, almost from the very beginning. But let's just say that the NBA had been like baseball, and let's just start baseball 1900, even though we know it was in the late 1800s. But let's just start baseball in 1900, and and so Jackie Robinson. Uh, you know, broke the barrier roughly 50 years, let's say, if we if we just start at 1900, the modern era. So roughly 50 years. If the NBA had waited 50 years, they would have broke the color barrier, broken it in um, 2000. So look at the players we would have missed in the NBA. I mean, besides, you know, Michael Jordan and, you know, Wilt Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor. I mean, it's Oscar Robertson. I mean, well, that's what happened with baseball. All of those guys that would have been playing basketball wouldn't have played. And if you just said there's a 50-year waiting period, if you're a person of color, as there was in baseball. I mean, so that's that's why I also say that as much as we want to put asterisks next to performances during the so-called steroid era, and if they end up doing that, and there's, there's, there's an acknowledgement at the Hall of Fame about the steroid era. But if you were to put an asterisk in record books, um, why wouldn't you put a st same asterisk about any statistics that were compiled 
before 1947. Because I can't help but think that if players had had batters that had to face the likes of Satchel Paige, um, that their that their numbers wouldn't have been quite what they were. When you keep the best players, some of the best players, if not the best, but at least some of the best, completely out off the field. You know, how, how do you how, how can you feel like the integrity of the records that do exist are at the same level as they would have been? And so, I just like to point that out because. We, we, you know, a lot of people make a big deal out of the steroid era, and I, I think it, it should be the same, you know, the same, same thought given to records compiled when the best players uh, weren't necessarily allowed to play. Yeah, and I think a lot of that's tied to a, a bias that none of us are immune from. But if somebody took steroids, and we know that that's something they actively did, if they happened to be playing when black players weren't allowed in the major leagues that might've been something that they had no involvement in. So there's almost the, the act of omission versus the act of commission in a sense. Yeah. And I think the end result is the same though. It's, this is not about assessing blame. It's just acknowledging the reality of the situation. And one thing yeah. I wanna correct from an earlier statement, I, you know, I, I think I said, we were deprived of seeing certain players before 1947. And sure, that, that could be true, um, but we're too, white men who have been deprived of very little in the grand scheme. And really those athletes were, were the ones who were truly deprived. So I, I want to try well, to keep that. this in, in the best possible perspective and really make that point clear. And to your point about the NBA, um, you know, it's, it's called the Bill Russell trophy for a reason, the NBA finals MVP. I mean, what, what would the world series MVP trophy be called if we could have seen some of the greats who never got their shot before 47. So true. So true. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you. This has been so fascinating. I know we're, we're coming up on Dodgers uh, home opener first pitch, so I want to <laughs> let you go to that. A few yeah. rapid fire questions to wrap things up. Uh, kicking things off, what's the toughest Heisman Trophy vote you can recall? Well, I'll tell you the one that was, to me, the most disappointing was 2000 and, um, six, 2015. That was the year that I felt the best football player in the country was Christian McCaffrey. And Derrick Henry was a landslide winner, and I felt it should have been just the opposite. I felt that the landslide winner should have been Christian McCaffrey. I think his numbers were off the charts. You know, he was over 2,000 yards rushing and the leading receiver, and he broke Barry Sanders' return record, punt and kickoff. Um, it was a season for the ages. And if he'd have had this season or even close to it at an SEC, SEC school, I think it would have been a landslide. But I mean, Stanford, um, you know, it, it's just, it's their games typically, many of their games are at night. They're a popular Pac-12 after dark school. And um, they're, they're just, they don't have the, the following or sizzle, it seems like in the media. So he was kind of, his numbers were sort of um, looked, looked over, looked past. Obviously he did, I mean, he finished second. So they were aware uh, of the, the the numbers, but I don't think they. I saw it in person, and that year, and the year before, and I I, I felt like it was a no brainer pick. So I'd say that was the one that it sticks out to me as one that um, uh, I I just I don't think the I don't think the majority of voters got right that year. Yeah, I think Christian McCaffrey has gotten to prove you right in the years that have followed with what he's done in the NFL. So hopefully we can yeah. see a full healthy season out of him 
in 2021, playing alongside former EFC quarterback Sam Darnold. Right. Right. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, that's uh, and I got a chance to I got a chance to meet Christian the next year at the Pac-12 Media Day, and it's the first time I had a chance to meet a Heisman candidate that I had voted for the next year because he still had eligibility. But you know, that was like that was really fun, and 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 somebody that uh, seems like a, a you know a quality person um, you know off the field as well. So. Uh, it'll be it'll be great to see the see how that dynamic works in um, in Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. Well, I bet if a lot of the your fellow Heisman voters could go back in time, they would agree with you on that one. Moving on to another rapid fire question: What is your favorite sporting event to attend? Uh, you mean as far as just any sporting event? I would like to just go out. Not not that I have attended, but just. Um, you know, for fun to be, to be out there for a game. Sure. I guess. And in my mind, uh, my perception is that you've, you've already seen and done everything. Um, although I'm sure that's uh. not a hundred percent true, <laughs> but yeah, if there's something that you've yeah. done that you like to do every year, maybe it's something you've done once or that you really want to do. If you're thinking about like the ultimate sporting event to attend in person. Yeah. You know, I, I I'm not sure there's any one. I really love going to the Rose bowl every year. Um, no matter who's playing. And it's not just because it's such an extraordinary day, you know, in the, the St. Gabriel mountains and the first day of the new year is something special about that. I have a routine. I have a, have a good friend who's a city councilman in Pasadena and he always does a pregame um, brunch at his place. And we do a post game at a restaurant in Pasadena to watch the game after the Rose bowl. And so the day New Year's Day is super special to me. And I grew up going to many Rose Bowl games when I didn't really have access to tickets or anything like that. But I had a mom, my my late mom, Sue, who was a sports fan, um, you know, extraordinaire off the charts. And she just did it by just sheer will. She just somehow made it happen that we managed to score tickets up there somehow, some way. So that's always been super special. I. It, it, and of course, we didn't have it this past January 1st, so there was a tremendous void. And the people in my life that often share that day with me all checked in to say how much they missed the Rose Bowl. Um, so I think that day, New Year's Day, including the Rose Bowl, is probably the one that's maybe stands out a little more than the others. But I mean, I've been so blessed to have been at you know, NBA championship games, seventh game of the championship, watched the Lakers win it mm-hmm. in one year in 1988. I watched the Angels win a world championship in 02. And, uh, you know, just being at World Series and all-star games, uh, the final four is, even in stadiums, the final four is an unbelievable event um, because, uh the, the energy and the color and the excitement, you know, college sports are probably favorites for me. It's just college football, college basketball. And there's just that there's a, there's an energy level and a sizzle factor, just a little greater to me than, than just about anything else. But you know what, man, I'm pretty happy on a Friday night being in a, you know, in a high school football field, I generally have sideline passes. So to be on a, you know, in a, in, a, in a Friday night light setting on the sideline. I got some, you know, buddies that 
love to do this. And we just look at each other sometimes and go, does it get much better than this? Uh, uh, two great teams and players, guys we're going to see. We talked about, today we talked about Uvalele, Bryce Young, and JT Daniels. Those are three guys that we were watching play on a, on a high school football sideline a few years ago. And now they're Heisman Trophy contenders. And that's one of the reasons I love high school football, especially as sometimes I'm getting a sneak peek at, at the next generation of college stars. So um, I don't necessarily have to be real picky when it comes to being at, uh, at sporting events, the ones that are, you know, been part of my life. I, I, you know, it depends on what, whatever the season is. That's when I'm happiest. Yeah, that sounds like a healthy perspective. And I love the high school football point because there's not a whole lot of purity in sports these days. A lot of it has probably always been a facade, but as we're seeing, especially right now with the NCAA case in front of the Supreme Court, there is still something maybe as close as we can get to that purity, just enjoying the Friday night lights as much as you might a final four or a game seven of the NBA finals or the world series. It's nice to bring that whole spectrum into play. So it seems like you have such an enriched sports background to share. And I really appreciate you for sharing it during this conversation. Just one more question and we'll wrap things mm -hmm. up. I think I'd be remiss not to touch on your expertise at just bringing in such a strong network to not only your class, but clearly to your life as a whole. And you've touched on guys like John Wooden, Fred Clare. I know Louis Zamperini, just, a, man, what a hero in every sense of the word he was. Um, and there, there are so many more names that we could list. But when it comes to people looking to pursue a career in sports, business, and media, what advice do you have on building a strong network? You know, I think it, man, I think it starts in college and it's just, it's, it's just being around, you know, about as simple a way as I can put it. I mean, whether it's for me, it was when I was in school at USC and I, you know, and, and guests would come to class. Uh, I thought that was somebody that, you know, I would want to get to know better or might be able to help down the road. Uh, I found people to be so willing to help. I've never forgotten that. It's one of the reasons I try to do that with my students now. So I would be the one that would go up and talk after class. I had, I got to know a sportscaster in LA, Ted Dawson, who was a big influence on me, gave me the opportunity to do amazing things while he was doing his, uh, you know, sportscasting, uh, you know, daily chores at, at uh, both at uh, KNXT, uh, CBS, and also at KABC in Los Angeles. I would come down there and, and, you know, do as much as I could to help out. I got a chance to, experience lots of stuff. Um, and, you know, he told me later, he goes, it's funny, you know, I, I give out my card and I talk to college students over the years. You were one of two people that actually called and took me up on my offer to help. I go, really? Wow. I'm surprised. And the other one ought to be a, an anchor at CNN, the early days of CNN. Um, so I always just say, um, take advantage of any opportunities you have to connect with people. And, and, you know, we're lucky being in, you know, if you go to school in Southern California, you're in a great market for media, uh, for sports, sports business. So um, we also have the, an element that didn't exist when, you know, when I was growing up or in college, and that's LinkedIn. So a way to connect professionally with people. And most of the time, if people are on LinkedIn, they realize they're going to get hit up and they're usually going to be willing to engage. Um, I'm not saying it's, you know, 10 out of 10 will, but um, I would say if you don't at least try, then you'll never know. And if, if, if somebody doesn't respond, uh, I can promise you that there will be a number of others that will. And so the idea that you could 
just about anybody you can think of as accessible, at least to say hello and try to connect with um, through a resource like LinkedIn is a huge thing. And so that's where networking starts. There's more competition today to get to know people, more people out there that are trying to break into sports. But that doesn't mean there isn't room for people that are are really good, you know, just, you know, willing to have a passion or really willing to work hard, have good communication skills, have a good feel for people. Um, and, you know, there are there are opportunities. Again, the competition is fierce, but there will always be room for for talented people to get to find their way into sports, stay in there and make an impact. And, uh, you know, my four P's are passion, preparation, performance and persistence. And I always say one fuels the next passion fuels preparation, which I think is the MVP um, because it, it, it affects everything else. Performance. Hey, you've got to be good what you do. Um, you know, there's competition, as I said. So you've got to, you know, you've got to perform just like the players do on the field or, um, you know, in the arena. And then persistence ties it all together. You, you know, you can't get discouraged. You got to, you got to believe in yourself and and not lose that belief if you have some setbacks. Is don't lose that confidence because if you don't have confidence and belief in yourself, how can you expect someone else to have it? Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, I was fortunate to have a front row seat to the fourth P entering the fold. I think when I took your class in 2009, <laughs> it was the three Ps and another yes. former Dodgers GM, Ned Coletti offered up the fourth one and, and it just fit right in. So it's, it's great to hear you give that overview. Great. And yeah. great, great memory. You, 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 you learned well, Matt, you, you paid attention. You were always engaged in class and, and I've, uh, it's been exciting for me to see that your, your successes and the progress you're making in your career and, and the bright future you have. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And it's hard if you're in a room with, you know, a conversation you're having with guys like, again, Ned Coletti, Fred Clare, Al Michaels was a guest. It's, if you're not paying attention, then you're doing something wrong. So that made it pretty easy. But I appreciate your answer to that last question, because I think it sets things up well to offer up a way that people can possibly get in touch with you if they'd like to. I, I wanted to plug your Twitter handle at Jay Fellinser. Yep. You're also on LinkedIn, uh, yep. also doing the Front Row podcast. I'd encourage anybody to listen to that to get a really nice behind the scenes look at some of the more interesting figures in the sports business and media world. Is there anything I'm missing or anything you'd like to add there? No, it's good. I think LinkedIn, uh, feel free, hit me up, um, tune into the podcast. My latest one is a conversation I had with Jack Flaherty, the St. Louis Cardinals young um, star pitcher out of Harvard Westlake. And uh, one of my favorite athlete conversations about some of the things that, um, uh, that have been impactful in his life growing up and, how he felt about Kobe Bryant. And I think you'll find out some things about him that you may not uh, know. Uh, I feel pretty confident of that. And uh, you'll have a different appreciation for him and somebody who's going to make an impact both on and off the field in his life. So um, uh, I encourage you if you're interested. My, my focus is the interesting journeys that people in sports have had. And uh, that's what fascinates me is how they got from there to here and what were the keys to success along the way. Yeah, that Jack Flaherty conversation might have been the best one yet. It's a great list, and I'd encourage anybody to go check that out. And Jeff, once again, I'd like to thank you for your time. I can't wait until the next time we're able to catch up in person again. 
And uh, before then, I might have to crash your class at USC for some Heisman Trophy intel or or just some bigger picture personal enrichment because that's always a joy. So once again, Jeff, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me as a guest, Matt, and, and best of luck to you going forward. Keep up the great work. Stay positive, test negative. <laughs> Words <laughs> to live by. Thanks yeah. again, Jeff. You bet. Take care. Goodbye. All right. Thanks again to Jeff for taking time to join the show. You can find him on Twitter at Jay Felinzer. You can also connect with him on LinkedIn, and I'd encourage you to check out his podcast, The Front Row. I'll include links to each of these in the show notes. And if you found any value in this conversation, please share it with a friend who could benefit as well. I'd also appreciate it if you could follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts. And friendly reminder that if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a quick rating and review would also be incredibly helpful. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, I'd love to touch base on Twitter at MLandis18 or on Instagram at Props and Hops. And if you're interested in a write-up on the highlights from my conversation with Jeff, you'll be able to find that over at Dimers.com, where you'll also be able to find a rundown of some of the best sportsbooks and promo codes in states where wagering is currently legal. I'll also include a link to that page in the show notes. And that'll do it for this episode of Props and Hops. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again next week. And until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well. If you see Jackie Robinson, hit that ball, did he hit it? Yes! And that ain't all, he's going home. Yes, yes, Jackie's real gone.